0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent
1: community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
2: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the Treaty was never signed.
1: This is 3CR Breakfast. Autumn news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am late
0: 30 am Double.
2: Good morning. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Mm. Nearly said Thursday breakfast, and nearly said Wednesday breakfast. <laughs> but today we know it's a Monday. <laughs> it
3: truly is Monday, the 25th of March. Oh,
2: tell me about it. goes so quick. We're, we're in the studio with. Julie and Judith, yeah, two J's, uh,
3: two J's, He yeah, no. <laughs> could be on triple
2: J if I, if I was a James or something like that, but well, yeah, don't want to listen you know, to that station, this is hard hitting stuff, yes,
3: that's right, and I wanna, uh, um, so uh, I'm Judith and this is Julie, good morning, good morning, and uh, we want to say thanks to Beyond Zero for their great program, they've just been listening to on the environment and we've got also some stories on the environment coming up today ourselves, so, um yeah, Judith and Julian and Dean here, and uh Dean, have you been noticing the weather at all?
2: yes, I have, so um I think yesterday a lot of victorians were uh you know, banning down the hatches, as there was a bit of a thunderstorm in certain yeah, areas. Yeah. I know the wind was pretty severe where I was living. Mm-hmm. So today it's partly cloudy with a high chance of showers about the Dandenongs, uh, medium ch- chance elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, top of 19 and a low of 11 tonight. So, uh, yeah, keep abreast of the weather and tune in to 855 a.m. on 3CR. Yeah, what's, on, what's on the show today,
3: ladies? Yeah, well, um, after um, 8... We're going to be uh, speaking with Blanche Verley, and she wrote an article for the conversation on young people and climate change and their anxieties and how that's affecting their identity. So she's coming in the studio, and that's always exciting, so we'll hear from her. We're also going to hear from Peter Owen, who is the director of South Australian Wilderness Society. And he'll be talking about the, the Great Australian Bite. So th- this will be an interview that I did uh, in December with him, just keeping us up to date. And then we'll bring us up to date on, on what's been happening since then. And then... Before, you know, after, the, well, just before 8, we'll be speaking. <laughs> I love that. We're going to go backwards. Yeah, uh, just before 8, we're going to hear from um, Professor Julian Merrick. And uh, he went to see a play called Manus. Oh, yeah. do mm. you heard about mm. that? Yeah. 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 It was produced by an Iranian theatre company, verbatim theatre group. And it was about the Iranian people refugees on Manus Island how amazing that that play was made in Iran for, about people who were fleeing that regime so anyway he was uh, he was very affected by the play so he's going to do a review of that so we'll hear from him and uh, we've got some great music as always and uh, but coming now and then we're going to we've we've put do you know what we've done actually what we've well, done <laughs> well, you're about to find out. we put Julie <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Okay. laughs> because we got so excited last week when we were hearing about a project she was involved in at the markets. Ah, so the markets, yeah, so yes. The market. Yes. Yes, mm. so Julie will be speaking about that. Um, and now we're going to um, have a little bit of music because coming up um, this week, and I think it's at the Croxton, but I'll check on that, we're going to, I mean, the person's going to be there, the, the group that's going to be there is Tower of Power. <laughs> so we thought we, I mean, it, it's kind of a bit, you know, early in the morning, perhaps, for <laughs> <laughs> this type of <laughs> funk, which is the name of the piece, but, uh, but we just wanted to, to wake up. So, yeah, here we go. And uh, we're about to now go into uh, news headlines, but before that, I just want to acknowledge that fabulous track by the Tower of Power, this type of funk, and I hope it got you going this morning, Monday morning. Yeah, what, what kind of news were you noticing over the weekend, Ian? What what's, what's in the headlines this morning?
2: Um, I just, before I get to headlines, on the weekend there was a Derebin Kite Festival. Oh, um, yeah? Yeah, nice. yeah, and I went there and it was quite interesting to see the Wilderness Society, the Greens, the, you know, uh, Jed Kearney, Labor, Liberal, and they always turn up there. Obviously, whether there's an election or not, they're yeah. always there. But um Good photo opportunity at the Kite Festival. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you get
3: your photo taken, Dean?
2: Well, I was trying to get a photo taken with the Tasmanian Devil and, and an oh owl there, um, but the kids got a bit scared. Um, <laughs> and obviously, they were there talking about saving the Tarkine. Um, So there was something uh, by the Wilderness Society, the Victorian government is inviting Victorians um, like, I guess, us to answer a short survey to improve the management of forests for the future. Mm. Uh, So this is your chance to tell the government why you care about endangered animal wildlife and tell them what you want done to protect our precious ecosystem. So you can go to engage.vic.gov.au forward slash future of our forests. I thought that is a sort of nice thing to let people know. Yeah, Especially indeed. because um, the Tarkine is sort of the last remaining uh, forest for um, the endangered species, which is the Tasmanian devil, you know, the yes, natural habitat. When and, and
3: they had that, that terrible disease a while ago. I mm. don't know if they're pushing that back or not, but, uh, yeah, that'd be something to find out more about for another show, actually. Yeah.
2: Um, and just quickly, uh, in the U.S. news, on Friday, Special Counsel Robert S. Muller's third, uh, sorry, his third Russian investigation ended with the news that uh, Muller... Won't be indicting anyone else. Apparently, there has been no collusion um, with Russia during the twenty sixteen American election, which I found to be, you know, quite quite strange. And, and I guess the whole point. So you are
3: not buying. You are not buying it, Dane. Well, <laughs> you know, the
2: whole point of that investigation was to see if a conspiracy with Russia existed. Yeah, um, yeah that's but right. But if, if it ended without a single American charge for colluding with Russia, why? Yes. Yeah. You know why? Why? It's a bit like the Brexit thing. Now they're talking about voting again yes. whether they want to stay or not. Brexit right.
3: um, so is just a nightmare. Yeah. It's an absolute mess. Yeah. 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 Well, insane. well, I, I have to say I stayed up late on Saturday night to watch the results of the New South Wales election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did anyone
2: <else> know? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, as well? do you know I knew they were on, but I thought <laughs> they were in like a couple more months' time. But, yeah, no, yeah, how, uh, see, yeah. Well, yeah. I
3: was interested to see it didn't make this, the front page of the Sunday Age. So I guess, they were, I mean, I think it was on the third, on the fourth page, something like that. But um, but just going back to the U.S. for a minute, um, what I was seeing coming out of there was great admiration for Jacinda Ar- Ardern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, both the New York Times and the New Yorker ran stories. The New York Times I think was saying this is what this is the leadership we need in America. Mm. And in it's particular- a good lesson on,
2: on gun laws before the US to say. That's
3: right. Yeah. And um and the New Yorker, I think had a long article about how she dealt with the violence in in, in not, you know, pulling out the military language but actually talking peace and promoting mm-hmm. peace. So mm. that there was that. But the other thing that um, I found really, really moving Was the image of Jacinda Ardern in um, the United Arab Arab Emirates? Did anyone see her image projected onto the tallest building in the world in Dubai? It was amazing of her with her arms around uh, one of the people, uh, I think families, Mm. a member of family who had been hurt or you know killed possibly, and um, and so you know there was great outpouring also there for her. I'm just going to just read I think I, I, should, I might have something here the text. Um,
2: that might have been that there's a, an, an image now circulating in social media of two women hugging and I think um, the, the, the comment says, oh you should you, you're always welcome here or you should be safe uh-huh. here, you should have been safe here. And it might have been taken from that Jacinda to an image I think. Yes, well it looks like this was
3: uh, from Sheikh Mohammed and uh, it says New Zealand Today, a te- uh, tweet New Zealand Today fell silent in honour of the mosque attacks martyrs. Thank you PM Jacinda Ardern and New Zealand for your sincere empathy and support that has won the respect of 1.5 billion Muslims after the terrorist attack that shook the Muslim community around the world
2: and I think it's a shift it, it, should, yes. uh, it's, um, it should be a, a sign and a shift in polit- politics and some of the political leaders Maybe it's a bit sexist, but I think a woman is probably more adept around the country than any of the men that we've had over the last <laughs> 225 years or well, so in well this a country. Lot, yeah, there's yeah. been
3: a lot of comment around you know, the contribution. One of the things she said is also having a child recently herself. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, she felt that, I mean, she's always been an empathic person. I yeah. mean, we mm. know that. Um, but she said it, it kind of touched her. She felt even more. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. But, uh, what and, you, and going back yeah, to the yeah. politics, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, no, I, no, uh, go. Gladys uh,
2: <laughs> uh Berogian, Belgian. um had splashed around $28 billion in election promises but a, 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 and you said you watched it I was I just saw this morning that the Liberal Party's smartest move in the election campaign was to wait until the final week to unleash a video showing Labour leader Michael Daly telling voters that Asians with PhDs were taking their jobs is, <laughs> is an, isn't is, it's amazing that that is, that is considered a smart move in political circles, it, and to it's be very sad, or,
3: isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a sad yeah. indictment, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, of our politi- political system. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: that that mm. you know, obviously it seems like the uh, the, you know, the, the the team planned it well. It's, the paper says that we don't really know. I mean, she probably would have won without the video anyway. It's you? hard to know. I mean, it was it was very
3: close. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. certainly, yeah, a lot of people talked about on, on that show. <laughs> a lot of people talked about the things that happened, the events of the last week. So um, yeah,
2: a- and she and obviously she's come out with this 28 billion in election promises. Julia, you mentioned that there was uh, some movement with some funding. Yeah,
3: 500 billion, well, uh, roundabout about for Victoria. Um, no, so we're from moving now from New South Wales from new South South Korea, yeah. to
4: Victoria for health. Which so um, that's huge. So, yeah, so we've got uh, under the Herald Sun the headline is Super Mac, and we've got a new centre at the Peter MacMillan. Um, cancer center um that's going to let's have a look.
2: get some some funding fun, yeah so, funding
4: yeah. for the for a new cancer killing um type of drug so what they do is they take the immune system they take the cells of the immune system out of their patient fiddle around with them re-engineer them put them back in and it kills the it kills okay. the cancer yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, and, and 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 it's those promises when's the victoria election does anyone know it's a while away, isn't we it? We just had one. Yeah.
3: Labour one with
2: a landslide. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so, you're thinking, well, you that thinking was the federal election. Right? No, no, no. I'm thinking of the Victorian one. It just seems so far back. Honestly, <laughs> you know? honestly, yeah. it does.
3: It, you're right. Um, yeah, but thinking. those
2: promises were probably made back then. But all of a sudden now they're rolling <laughs> out. It's a, it's a big, big job to make promises and then not deliver. Yeah. You know, and then obviously you've got to then. Who, how do you split that 500 million? Mm. which services needed is it the NDIS is it elderly is it you know, the Department of Housing you know, so it's yeah. quite a yeah it's great to make the promises but the money has to go into those services mm. that you said that and, we're kind of and going I to. guess
3: that's what we're at least the, this announcement does, seems to be saying mm. well 40
4: million is going into a new paediatric emergency department at Geelong so yeah. that's, that's really good eight new headspace services mm-hmm. and there's also a boost for medical research as well so that's good
3: yeah
2: yeah, yeah for sure yeah. And that's our alternative news. Just go to a few announcements and back in just a moment.
5: Join me, Sally Goldner, the presenter of Out of the Pan for a live broadcast on international trans day of visibility at Hares and Hyenas on thirty first of march twenty nineteen, organised by Transgender Victoria with three CR. With co-host Mama Alto we'll be moderating a live panel discussion about issues, experiences and intersections between and about trans people of colour. Get your tickets online at tdov2019.eventbrite.com.au That's tdov2019.eventbrite.com.au Or listen live to the discussion right here on 855am on digital and streaming online.
4: For human rights indigenous sovereignty and climate justice our destination is Manus island join us for the freedom flotilla sailforjustice.org get on board
1: a 3cr supporter
2: you're on 855 am 3cr it's the breakfast show with judith julie and dean and a special guest, who we won't tell you about her just yet, but she'll be a surprise later on. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so (laughs) our special guest
3: is um, Julie Moss. She's a speech therapist, she's worked in the UK and she's worked in Australia. She's done lots of work in the disability sector and has a strong interest in social justice. And uh, she's also a volunteer presenter here on 3CR Monday (laughs) (laughs) Breakfast. So, welcome. We'll just throw her into the fire. (laughs) That's a surprise. (laughs) And so, today we've invited her to talk about a project she's worked on. Um, to make markets more accessible for people with disabilities. I guess, you know, we all love markets. It's yeah. a, it's a mm. place that we mm. really enjoy.
2: Well, the Card Festival I just went to on the weekend um, yeah. is a perfect example of the lack of accessibility for people oh, with disabilities. Very interesting. Yeah.
3: So, so, Julie, can you first give us some background to this project you were involved in?
4: Yeah, sure. So, I've just started a project at South Melbourne Market and I was asked to do that by the Metro Access Worker there. Um, but it's it's part of sorry, it's part of a a larger um, type of federal funded um, thing. Yes. F- okay. Get, so so get so funding. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's funded. So um, it's funded. So you've got speech and language therapists who work under the um, umbrella of Scope. Uh, scope give us money to go out and make businesses more accessible and
3: inclusive to people with communication disabilities. And and so you were contacted. So are, you were part. You're part of this group. I'm part of this group. Yeah. yeah and we you were contacted by the South con- Melbourne market?
4: Contacted by the Metro Access Workers. Oh,
3: Okay. Yeah. So what we
4: do is we, we look at um. We, so we go out into libraries, we go out into markets, we go out into hospitals, and we make sure that, um, that that it, that it is that people coming in with, for example strokes or um, people with intellectual disabilities so people who don't understand language or who have difficulties in expressing themselves feel comfortable and able to be included in whatever's going on in the environment mm.
2: there and makes the, sense in the old days it used to be and it probably still is, that you had an interpreter or you had somebody to help elderly people communicate. But there are new ways that people with those types of difficulties can probably maybe use technology or use the location that they're in to actually get their message across.
4: That's right. So, I mean, what, what we would do, first of all, is we go into the actual environment and we look at the, the signs, the signage there. Mm. So can people find their way around? Um, it, so at South Melbourne... We're looking for signs. Can they find the stores that they want? Mm. Things like that. Um, you're also looking at signage at an, an accessible level. So if you're in a wheelchair, you know, can you see it? It's got to be at yeah. eye level. And you, um, you're making up the sign. So you've, there are various symbols that you can use, but you want it to be nice and clear. Mm. Um, the other things that we can do is we can train up market store holders um, to, uh, to sign. And do, just to do some general... Basic strategies mm. for good communication, mm. um, and also we can make resources like communication boards for for people to point at um, if you can't speak. So hey. yeah. yeah. So yeah. Go
2: on. Go uh, so I uh, know no, Judith has got some questions too. But you, the other thing about that is when you train the the market storeholders or yeah. people within the area where the um, uh, people with with uh communication difficulties come to yeah. it's also an opportunity for them to capture that market. I know I'm talking about people <laughs> making a profit. About sure. Well yeah, yeah, yeah but true, right. to, to be able to yeah. say okay well I haven't lost somebody because I've had problems yeah. communicating with them. They're there for a reason. Yeah. You know, they either want to buy something, they need to buy fruit and veg. Yeah. So how can we get those people to be independent that's while right. we're also helping the, yeah. the yeah, that's storeholder right, yeah.
3: That's sure. right. Yeah and and also i guess the stall gaining more understanding mm, of people more who are coming in and more skills yeah yeah
4: i mean you're looking at the the whole person so you're also looking at um access to toilets disabilities toilets but the metro access workers do some fantastic work around that there's a a new project called changing places and what this is it's a it's a, a disabilities toilet but it's for adult change so you have, um, like, it's got a hoist, it's got a changing table, and it's got um, showers there. Wow. Because normally, sometimes we've heard, that, you know. Um, carers can they've had to change adults on the on the floor of the toilets mm. and it's oh, no, yeah
2: that's mm. terrible yeah. yeah and something yeah. You, you don't think about as an able-bodied person
3: Oh well, no no you don't yeah 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 so when you went into so are you in the process of looking at the south melbourne market or have you you finished that process? no
4: just in the process
3: um, okay. process of it yeah so when you walked in <laughs> what did, did you see?
4: It? Well, it was like a lot of a lot of information coming straight at you. It was very muddled, uh, so I went in and took some photos. I did a walk through, yes. um, and and yeah. So you are you, wanting to see other corridors? Um, signed properly, is there a especially on the intersections mm. so you can see where you're going um, yeah, Can I just say sure. that, that I would find this very helpful myself yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, I markets mean, can be confusing places
4: This is what it's about, so it's sort of like universal design you're actually designing the environment so that everybody can access it and things like making information much clearer um, that benefits everyone, not just people with disabilities
3: obviously mm. Yes, Yeah. so um, are you at the point yet uh, of making some um, suggestions or proposals to the South Melbourne market?
4: Um, no, we're waiting for them to come back because funding for metro access workers has been cut and also funding for our communication access um has oh, this is, this is has been an cut. old and familiar story. Yeah, mm. yeah. Wow. So, yeah so, I mean, Getting back to my promise. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, well, the... the victorian um funded project is for the communication access symbol so you know when you're going into a shop and you see a symbol of a person in a in a wheelchair and you yes. yeah and you know then that that you can you can go you can go in and see it's accessible for you if you're if you've got mm. um, a mobility problem what we want to do with this communication access symbol is to um we go through a series of steps like with South melbourne market or with the the libraries as well, I've been working with them. And so people can see that symbol and they know that the front of desk staff have been trained up, that it's going to be, everything's going to be clearly um, signed inside and that uh, there's going to be a communication board there, that the resources and leaflets are going to be clear and able to be understood and also maybe that the website that they've got is going to be clear so right. you can be comfortable don't mm. that's right that's right you can participate yeah. i remember
2: speaking to somebody about this in 2017 that long ago <laughs> yeah. and it was the idea of making it a universal that's communication right universal, symbol. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, right it can yeah. go all around the world yeah yeah yeah,
3: yeah. no mm-hmm. you're right and is that hap- is that happening um, or are, we, are we talking particularly Victoria right now it's Victoria at the moment mm, um, yeah, but again
4: scope, if you want to get on the Scope website they'll be able to tell you more about that but yeah. some, it's
2: got to start somewhere doesn't it like if, yes. you, if Victoria can get it right there's an opportunity then to take it out to the world so if someone in Sweden gets it right you, we're not going to say no because it's obviously you know, going to benefit Victorians yeah, yeah. You know?
3: and uh, Julie, are you aware of, of other places where this, these kinds of things have been done in Victoria... No, oh, um, no, just any, any at all. I mean, is there something you're looking to? Are there any examples you can look to around the world? Or is this something that's kind of homegrown, just growing out? It's like a grassroots um, thing that's happening here in I think Victoria. It's, I
4: think it's just homegrown at the moment, so, mm. yeah. But it's uh, certainly Victoria and Australia are leading the world in mm. alternative and augmentative communication. Mm. So I was just interviewing the world president of um, the International Society of Alternative and Augmentative Communication a couple of weeks ago, and she, she had, a, like what you were talking about, Dean, so she had a little iPad, and there's all sorts of new things are coming out now, and this thing is called a flip writer, so she types on this side, and then it shows up your side, and she presses a button, and it speaks. So wow. it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. It's oh, amazing.
3: Yeah. And, and are you in communication with people who have various disabilities in doing this project?
4: yes so um that lady that i spoke about she's one of our mystery shoppers so (laughs) basically once we've got everything in place then she'll go through and um engage with the people in the libraries or at south melbourne market or in the hospitals and then write a report for us so yeah
2: it's um it's it's a great idea but i just remember when i worked in, in retail i used to work in ladies' shoes, and it was always quite interesting when you saw, as a young person, how you could judge a book by its cover, you yeah. know, like, and that's just on face value. So if someone has communication difficulties, it, it has a lot of challenges, doesn't it, in that we need to get to a space where everybody can communicate, especially that's right. in that environment. Yeah, that's so right.
4: I mean, don't feel... Um, very often when people have got a communication difficulty, it makes you feel... All anxious, don't, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and upset. Don't, don't just slow down and listen to to people, and, mm. and they're going to be feeling more anxious than you. So, mm. yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, I, just, I just remember, sorry, digress. <laughs> this one situation where these two elderly ladies came in, and and they, you know, were they looked like they were from from Asia, and I thought, oh, I'll go and help them. I thought, oh, this is going to take forever. And one of them said to me, oh, how are you going, love? <laughs> and, I, and I nearly fell over. And, you know, she was third generation. And I just yeah, made this normal. assumption that I'm in the city. These yeah. people have to be tourists. So, yeah, you know, and, and for young people too, that it's something that they have to learn. And it, it's, a, it's a great sort of idea that we can give young people these skills although the way they communicate now is a bit different but at least we're teaching them to communicate and be slow and then it will hopefully have a flow-on effect yeah
4: and just some basic signing as well yeah. being, it's really good yeah. yeah
3: so julie thanks so much uh, we, 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 you know we put you on the spot I mean, yeah. on friday but uh, <laughs> it's really good to know about these things they're the really important and now i think we have a, a song coming up yes we do yeah canadian jazz singer Molly Johnson. I've got
6: to get up out my
3: and that was Wally Johnson, Canadian jazz singer. Cl- I and mean, a big thanks to my sister for from Toronto, sending that one along. I've enjoyed it. I've had a lot of years. It's not a new one, but uh, it's one I go back to quite a lot. And the song was Another Day. And isn't it just? So last week I spoke to um, Professor Julian Merrick. He's a strategic professor of creative arts at Flinders University. He's a theatre historian. A cultural policy analyst, and he's also an award-winning theatre director, so <laughs> he's got a lot of, um, a lot of uh, talents there, and he was also previously an associate director and literary advisor at Melbourne Theatre Company, so probably well-known to people in Melbourne as well. Last week, he wrote a review of the play Manus, which was performed by the Verbatim Theatre Group from Tehran, Tehran. and uh, it wasn't your usual interview. An experienced theatre critic walks into a theatre, pen in hand, that's if you use a pen, to write a review and leaves feeling numbed, drained and profoundly confronted. What happens? Yeah.
5: I don't think it's easy to describe. It has a personal dimension to it, but also a public dimension. Personal, I saw and heard things that probably individually I thought I had heard and seen before, but not in such a concentrated form. And that that had an effect on me personally, Julian Merrick, as somebody who has a position in the world and some sense of moral responsibility towards it. And the public aspect is that what I was watching, which was really the stories of asylum seekers who'd been incarcerated in Manus and Nauru, those actions that had seen those individuals detained had been done in my name that the Australian government had done it because it believed that people like me wanted that to happen or thought it was an appropriate course of action. And so putting those two things together, I suppose I dropped my metaphorical pen and thought, I'm dealing with a different kind of experience here. This is not just another bit of theatre.
3: So can you tell me a little bit about the background to the play? What what do you know about the background? Yeah,
5: I knew it was done by an Iranian theatre company. Interestingly enough, I had worked with an Iranian PhD student for some years. So I knew that some of the impressions that we had about Iran were a bit erroneous, that it's quite Hellenized in its culture, that it's quite liberal in some aspects. I knew it was very young, and I wasn't surprised to see a theater company from Iran, from Tehran in in particular, being able to address topics of, of kind of political importance I was surprised there's a little line in the program note that says that the plight of Iranian asylum seekers in Manus and Nauru is as unknown to Iranians as it is to other people.
3: Seems like the message of this play is to two different governments.
5: Yes, and I suspect that given that it was presented in Persian, that it was intended for an Iranian audience and that it, it wasn't really designed to tell Australians about the stories of these asylum seekers, although it might have been, but I didn't get that impression. I thought it was it was a, a more targeted kind of show than that. And that, that we, uh, you know, as an Australian kind of culture had sort of picked it up and taken it to Australia. And I, I thought that that was really interesting because I suspect it has quite a different effect here. A well, verbatim play is using dialogue which has been generated by people in the real world whose words have been recorded electronically and then transcribed and then learnt by actors.
3: So so is verbatim a particular type of theatre?
5: It sure is and there are some, I wouldn't call them rules, but I would call them guides to what you can do with those recordings, you know, with those words. So just to give you one of the norms that you'd expect to see in verbatim theatre you can't just rip individual sentences out of their context and use them willy-nilly. You have to use the chunks that people naturally speak in.
3: I like, I um, like this. It's true to the person and the speaker. It, there's an honesty in that.
5: Absolutely. There was a, a man in the 1960s called Peter Cheeseman who is often considered the pioneer uh, of verbatim theatre and he developed a, a set of norms and expectations But not not unlike uh, the ones that might govern an interview for research purposes within a university environment. And the idea is that it then gives the artist some some degree of freedom in terms of how they combine this material to produce a show. But at the same time, there is a, a framework that means that the material is true to the intention of the person who's giving the interview in the first place. You can hear that in the dialogue when the actors start speaking.
3: So what was the set like? The lights came on, I guess, or could you see the set even before the lights came up?
5: Well, it was a very simple set, and it was a set that assembled and disassembled very easily because it was basically two dozen red petrol cans, jerry cans, and the actors moved those around to create sometimes seats, sometimes a wall, sometimes kind of other less determinate objects and they would kind of sit on these or stand on these there was a screen at the back of some kind which could take a projection and that was basically it it was the actors these very dark almost blood red petrol cans and then a projection screen at the back there was multiple projections throughout the show sometimes onto the cans sometimes onto the screen, but very frequently onto the bodies of the performers themselves. And that was, you know, a very striking effect.
3: When I read that in your review, I was quite strongly affected at the, you know, the different la- the many layers of meaning within that, yeah. like the way our government has uh, written, engraved uh, deeply on the body, its policies on the bodies of the, the people, the refugees, uh, but on yeah. the psyche as well as uh, physically. Yeah
5: and I, th- I think that that connotation was very strongly in the show so that it felt a very vulnerable thing for the actors to be doing
3: the screen on the back did it have the the translations of what people were saying
5: yes there was a an overhead surtitle board and then there was the the projection screen at the back and the language translation was presented on the surtitle above and the screen at the back was was mainly reserved for, for images of one kind or another. And the show was not suffused with images. They were kind of, uh, not few and far between, but they were certainly very selective. And a lot of them were of news footage that I would personally have seen, the ABC News over the last four or five years. That's when I started to become aware of my own subject position as they say as as an Australian I started kind of going not only am I seeing these things and are they having an impact on me but I remember seeing these things before why didn't they have the same impact on me then
3: oh that's interesting and what's your answer to that question
5: I have none you know I just have none Uh, and and anything that I could possibly come up with would sound a bit like an excuse, and I don't want to give it. The kind of attention that you pay in the news is not the kind of attention that you pay in the theatre. And perhaps now that that particular policy, the um, you know sovereign borders policy, has kind of uh, reached a sort of a critical point, not that it didn't reach a critical point before now, but it has definitely reached another critical point then the accumulated effect of all of those images together, of all that information together, is almost overwhelming.
3: If you've just tuned in, we've been speaking with Professor Julian Merrick and he's talking about the play Manus, uh, performed by the Verbatim Theatre group from Tehran and uh, obviously had a a profound effect on him. Here's Julian again.
5: So in Verbatim Theatre, the dialogue is mostly direct address to the audience. So the actors speak directly to the audience in story block. They speak in sort of paragraphs and it's all reported action. So they tell you what has happened. There were eight actors, I think. They identified themselves as particular, I was about to say characters, but of course they're they're not characters, they're particular people. And they spoke as those people. And the first third of the play was basically giving a background to why those individuals had chosen to leave Iran, the reasons that had seen them get on some crappy boat and try to arrive to Australia across the sea.
3: And can um, you remember what some of those were?
5: They were kind of normal. You know, there was one who was gay and one who was obviously kind of politically suspect and one who wasn't Muslim enough. They were all reasons where you just went, Absolutely. I mean, in my review, I just said credible, but the the strongest sense that you got from these stories was of normalness and ordinariness rather than these people being in some way dangerous <laughs> yes. or kind of kind of immediately kind of when you, you immediately kind of acceptable
3: and uh, fleeing something getting away from something that was just uh, dangerous for them by the sound of it yes
5: extreme extremely dangerous and there was a, there's enough detail in those stories For somebody on the outside, like me, who, you know, is perhaps a little bit aware of what's happened in the post-Iranian revolution period, enough detail to see that there is a very dangerous side to that regime when you get on the wrong side of it. So you've got enough information to know why they've gone. And then the story of them getting away is, is pretty horrific because they get on a boat and it gets caught in a storm. Um, in the sea between Indonesia and the top of Australia and they nearly drown, get picked up by a British uh, naval vessel and the, and the captain says, well, look, where do you want to go? And they say, without being aware that the sovereign border's legislation has just passed, I think, literally the previous week, they say mm-hmm. Australia. So they get taken to be processed on Manus and Nauru and, of course, never leave it. And then the next two-thirds of the play, which is the last hour, is what happens to them on Manus and Nauru, and that's the bit that where I really started to sort of struggle while I was watching the show.
3: Yes, and you, you did talk about petty ty- tyranny that they experience almost on a daily basis.
5: It's, it's terrible. I mean, to listen to it in a sequential way and to not be able to leave, not to have it in a sort of three-minute news grab or just kind of a column and a half in the newspaper or even in a long page in the Saturday paper, but to have it laid out in some detail, you get a sense of the scope of it, but also the intention of the regime. You know, you have time, unfortunately, to sort of sit back and go, you know, why did we behave like this? Why, having punished people by incarcerating them, why, once we had incarcerated them, did we go out of our way to humiliate and hurt them? I think that that's one well, question that obviously haunts me and i can't see how anybody regardless of their political beliefs and regardless of their beliefs about the sovereign borders legislation i can't see how that question can't haunt them as well
3: and you say in in your article that uh, theater has a trick of hanging out home truths in ways that can't be dodged
5: yeah i think that's right it's partly because it's in the voice of the people uh, who actually are experiencing this thing. So you hear their words in their words. It's partly because the actors in theatre, you're allowed to um, and expected to give an emotional charge to your words. So it's not just kind of objective journalism, it's delivered in an emotional way, in an appropriately emotional way, so you, you actually understand that there's a human context here. And it's partly because in theatre, while it is a you know, restricted art form in many ways because you're in one location, it is capable of giving you a sense of the whole of something. In this case, it's capable of giving you a sense of a six-year period, which is how long many of these individuals were locked up for, and it's capable of giving you a sense of the physical environment that they were in and the physical things that happened to them in a kind of visceral way, in a way that goes, directly to your imagination and it's very hard to close that down without actually physically walking out of the theatre.
3: And I'm wondering how you're feeling now, like it's a, a week and a half or so since you saw yeah. the play? And...
5: Well, no less affected, I have to say. You have almost an obligation to kind of ask questions of it if you're going to sort of take its message to heart. I think Manor stands up in every single way. And also, I I think there are many aspects to the show itself, and I'm I'm gonna say a few things that are perhaps a little bit critical, but I I think actually ultimately kind of validate the piece. It's not an incredibly sophisticated piece of theater. Despite its its visual techniques, it's, it's not that slick. And some aspects of it are almost heavy handed and a little bit crude. But not only do I think that that doesn't matter, I think in some way it shows the, the kind of the, the genuineness of the project, that they, they were doing it for the right reasons and not because they were just trying to produce a very clever piece of theatre that they thought might do well in the Adelaide festival.
3: Yes, and of course they, there were messages there for, uh, yes. as we said earlier, two countries, and it would have required some courage to, uh, to have Absolutely. it performed in Iran, given the critique inherent of their own policies and persecution Absolutely. of people's
5: no question whatsoever it would have taken i think a great deal of courage and a courage that we would probably assume too lightly given our context the question then arises for me what is it that makes a set of artists in a country where they has a cost produce a kind of piece of theater that we haven't produced in a country where there is no cost. Well, you know, where technically yes. speaking, we we could go and produce a piece of theatre like that next week, but, yes, but we haven't.
3: but we haven't. Although there has been, of course, lots of groups that have been protesting about what's going on.
5: For me, the show also meant I had to do something after the theatre.
3: <laughs> so it, yeah. it, it spurred you to action.
5: Yes, it, it, it did. I mean, we're coming up to an election anyway. Yes. Um... And um, uh, I think most people think that um, there will be a change of government. With the change of government comes at least potentially a change of policy, but that that policy is unlikely to change unless there is a change of heart within public opinion. And it's that really that I have begun to think about, you know, more seriously. I think that there is an aspect to border protection, on which reasonable people can disagree but I think there is an aspect which anybody who calls themselves a good Australian or even a human being just cannot accept and that is poor treatment for people who are incarcerated for long periods for for no criminal reason. That's completely unacceptable and it has to stop.
3: And that was Julian Merrick, a professor of creative arts at Flinders University, and he was not only very moved by the play Manus performed by an Iranian, I mean, I still, I mean, I'm still kind of gobsmacked that this play was performed by an Iranian theatre company, given the challenges of that in Iran. And uh, because, of course, the, the the refugees have left around for politi- many political reasons, and uh, yes, but um, yeah, Julia Merrick very moved. And uh, with an election coming up, of course, I expect refugee advocates will certainly be very busy, and we'll be covering those kinds of stories continuously. I think as we move towards that election, going to um, have a song in a little while. But before that, a few announcements.
7: You're listening to 3CR 855
6: AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au
1: On March 16th, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with the devastations of the mountains. Also, poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West popon people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sintani, West Papua. Donate online at https slash project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone.
3: Flanagan and I I love this is an old album by her she's done something more recently at least one but this was maybe your first one called Nirvana Nights. And, um yeah, it's just full of great music. It was kind of the song track to my life, I think, for about a year. Mm. <laughs> I listening to it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um So, you know, we're, we get very excited when people come into the studio. We get lonely in here. And so right now we have Blanche Fairley in the studio. So, Blanche, thank you for coming in.
7: Thank you for having
3: me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And welcome to 3CR. Now, Blanche, you're teaching on, at our MIT yeah, University. That's right. And you're in the sustainability and urban planning discipline yes. in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies. I don't think there's anything left out. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. In that. And uh, your PhD is on climate change engagement?
7: Yeah. I was at uh, Monash University in the education department and I submitted it in January. So are
3: you still yep. waiting? I'm still results? waiting. Yeah. So. Oh gosh. Yep. Okay. That's that's. Yep. <laughs> a, that, yeah, that's a yep. challenging time. Yeah. I'm enjoying it actually. Not oh, thinking good. about it. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of nice just giving it away. There's yep. nothing else you can yep. do now. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite Yeah. Good. Yep. That's great. Okay. So um, and, and you're looking at um, was was it your PhD or is it your general research on climate change engagement and undergraduate students' experiences?
7: Yeah. So I conducted my PhD. Uh, you, uh, working with my students at RMIT okay. in a course that I teach there called Climate Change Responses. Okay. Uh, so I didn't intend to set out looking at their emotional experiences or mine, but it became apparent that that was a, a significant part of the learning process. Yes, yeah. and,
3: I mean, it's interesting that your article in the conversation was published on the day of the strike, the student mm. strike, so I think that uh, coincided very nicely with some of the anxiety which was very much on display mm. during that, those strikes. So, yeah. so what what surprised you? What, what were you surprised by? What? In
7: the research process? Yeah. Um, I, that's a good question. I think, I suppose, in environmental education we're often trying to... Um, raise people's awareness with the presumption that they aren't already concerned about environmental issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Evidently, I teach students who study the Bachelor of Environment Society, so they've already come to the degree, you know, knowing a lot about environmental issues. I guess I was surprised at how uh, significant and how influential the role of their emotions was in their learning process and the extent to which uh, young people... Not that all my students are young people, um, but the majority are, the extent to which um, they were deeply distressed about mm-hmm. climate change.
3: So what yeah. sort of methodology did you use to, to get the, their, their thoughts and their feelings? How did you approach it?
7: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it was quite an emergent methodology. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's, all, no, that's always good. That's great. In the sense that uh, effectively I took a lot of notes and reflections after classes yes. regarding my interactions with them and um, used a lot of their assessments and emails to me um, to So did you have to get ethics, ethics approval thing? to yeah, use that material? That's right. Yeah, And
3: that would have meant the students uh, gave permission to yes. all of that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, yeah. that's very rich data.
7: Yes, I did end up with a, lot of, a long, long document. Um, and so part of it also, I guess, was my own... Uh, lived experience. It was a kind of ethnography in that sense as well.
3: Yeah. And would you say something about your own lived experience? Do you feel comfortable? Yeah, doing sure. It? Yeah,
7: <laughs> yeah. So I suppose my research is—it's um, easier to present research when you're talking about other people's experiences, but it's quite difficult to separate my own uh, experiences of learning about climate change from that of my students, obviously in a class setting you're learning together really Um, and that was the first year that we'd run that course at RMIT as well so it was very much a learning process for the teaching staff as well as for the students Um, and that particular year um, I just found it very tiring um, teaching about climate change particularly then trying to go home and take lots of notes about what happened. Um, Teaching takes a lot of uh, focus from you in the moment so it's yeah, a lot know. of emotional energy mm, too. Yeah, yeah even when it's not an emotional topic yeah um yeah so I found it a pretty uh really challenging semester um but I think that that was you know beneficial in a lot of ways because I learned a lot about myself um, yes. and gave me you know a good uh, set of experiences to talk about in my research yeah
3: yes and uh, so you say in your paper, in fact, and, and I think you've already alluded to that because you said the course started with the idea that people didn't know much about climate change. You say in your paper that children are up to date with the facts. Mm, so yeah. how did that come? How did that come through?
7: Well, I mean, I think that for a long time now we've had, particularly in Australia, so much um, climate denial. And that public, you know, advocacy organisations and the media as well have been really trying to counter that by publishing a lot of, um, you know, stuff in the media around um, what the science is saying and those kind of things. And, you know, children in particular are savvy on the internet. So even though the, you know, national curriculum might not provide a particularly extensive engagement with climate change, young people are still able to find that information on social media and the internet and... Um, so, and from what you're saying, they do. Mm. They, they go looking for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, teachers do a great job to the extent that they can. And um, for 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 some young people, they'll be using that and then doing more research at home yes. by themselves. Yeah, yeah. Now we've
3: got a little um, bit of the the talk that um, that Greta gave that started all the students striking. Mm. So I mean, would would you like to hear? Maybe yeah, just, let's uh, a little play a little bit. It. And it's embedded in your papers. Yeah, right? so, Greta's amazing. Yeah.
6: My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of climate justice now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to but to do that we have to speak clearly no matter how uncomfortable that may be you only speak of green eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular you only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake you are not mature enough to tell it like it is even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular I care about climate justice and the living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury it is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few the year 2078 I will celebrate my 75th birthday if I have children maybe they will spend that day with me maybe they will ask me about you Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past, and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses, and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people.
3: And uh, very moving words. Had you heard them before?
4: No, it's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff, yeah
3: yeah amazing yes so um so blanche i just should remind everyone (laughs) blanche Fairley is in the studio with us and she's written a paper on young people and climate change and one of the things that that you say in your paper also is um the identities of young people are changing in relation to climate change how does how are you finding that how did you see that
7: Yeah, um, good question. Uh, So I suppose one thing in the paper is, I've said young people's, but realistically it's not all young people and not necessarily yet. But I do think for those uh, young people like Greta and those who are going on the school strikes and engaging with climate change in other ways, uh, as Greta mentions, you know, this idea that the future is going to just play out fine is really... Really being undermined by climate change, and so a lot of the things that perhaps the baby boom, the baby boomer generation that our parents sort of told us or you know assumed that will play out for us is, is not the case, um, and so that really I think challenges people's understanding of their capacity to be um, capable people um, or to work towards you know particular goals that they might set them for themselves. So. Uh, for example, I've had friends tell me things like that their children were asked at school what they wanted to be when they grow up, and they can't, they can't answer that because they're preoccupied with will there be a future or not. And so questions around, you know, what kind of subjects should you be taking at school become sort of meaningless when it's not clear how they will help address the realities that young people will be living with. And
3: a lot of those ideas were borne out in the placards that young people... Mm held during the climate change marches.
7: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, some of them, I guess, echo things that environmentalists have been saying for a long time. But I think that what is somewhat different about the school strikes is how um, visceral, I think, that sense of fear is for young people, that it's not, it's not just about um, some other people somewhere else, um, but this is really about their capacity to have a viable future. Um, and that that's not about just the long term either, but the short term as well. You know, we've seen just in the last week or so, Cyclone Idai. I'm not sure how to say that cyclone's name, <laughs> but you know, that's being called possibly the worst um, disaster event in the Southern Hemisphere ever. Um, and so, you know, with things like this increasingly happening, it's um, it's not just the long, slow. Um, Descent into climate chaos uh, that is uh, distressing for young people but the potential for really abrupt sudden changes as well
3: Yes, and I think there was some talk in in one of the UN reports about kind of the exponential nature of Mm. some events and some of the unexpected events that can actually accelerate beyond what people were predicting and that the UN report was in fact a bit conservative
7: Yes, yeah, and I mean that's something that I think makes climate change both um, obviously we know it's an important and concerning issue but it's really interesting as well because when you look at climate change you learn a lot of new things um, and it challenges how we thought the world worked and um, teaches us to understand, you know, all kinds of different processes that operate in ways that we hadn't really considered well, before. One of the
3: things you said in your paper that I really said it challenges our dominant cultural narratives.
7: Yeah, and that idea that, um, I guess, things uh, unfold in a sort of linear process and um, for example people think that you know maybe two degrees of climate change will be twice as bad as one degree of climate change but it doesn't operate like that at all and two degrees um, in particular or for particular parts of the climatic system might mean you know like a five hundred percent decrease in particular crop production and things like that so um, it doesn't it doesn't operate in those sort of slow Slowly un- and evenly unfolding kind of processes, yeah. yeah. And, and we're in it now. I mean, mm. that's, that's your point. Uh, you know, yeah, we're we're in it <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah that's and right. Totally,
3: yeah, with the example that cyclone, but there are many other mm. examples. And I guess there must be enormous frustration that we're not seeing more action from particularly our government here in Australia.
7: Yeah, and I think particularly for young people who are so uh, literate in the media and able to see, you know, like every week there is a news story of some kind of unprecedented something happening somewhere in the world. And to be able to see all of those, um, to have access to all of that information and yet to have political leaders... um, What what world are they living in? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Exactly. And I think one mm-hmm. of the harder things for young people is, you know, you can kind of create these sort of... Like, politicians seem so far removed from reality, but I think some of the more challenging things is how to have conversations with friends and family um, who, who don't get it the way that, you know, particular people feel that um, they understand the problem, and trying to have conversations with those real people in their lives who aren't taking it as seriously as they would hope. And so I was
3: going to ask what you'd urge adults to do. I guess that that begs (laughs) the question of what is an adult and what age (laughs) So I don't want to get that complicated (laughs) because unfortunately we're running out of time. But... But is that, was that your starting point? People need to talk about these
1: issues. Yeah, I
7: think climate change is something that we don't know how to talk about and so we don't talk about it at all or we avoid talking about it. Um, but really it's only through having those conversations that we'll be able to come up with something that we can do. And so although they're uncomfortable, it's really important that we have those conversations as terrifying and as unsettling as they may be. But through that process we might be able to come up with, you know, something better than what we've done so far, which is not much. <laughs>
3: yes. Well, Blanche, thank you so much. Blanche Verley from RMIT. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for coming to the studio. And, and hopefully we can have you back again mm-hmm. as you uh, you know progress your own research that follows on from your PhD. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, It's lo- been lovely. And thanks for coming to the studio.
6: My pleasure. Yeah.
3: We've just been speaking to Blanche Verley, really, and I was at the, the Climate oh, sorry, the climate Change March. I was at was in Adelaide. I happened to be there, and I noticed there was a lot of placards both about Adani but also about drilling in the Great Australian Bight, and that's the next story that we're going to hear now. And I guess most of our listeners probably already know that the Norwegian company Equinor is planning to explore for oil in the Great Australian Bight. But before it can do that, it needs approval for its environmental plan. Now, that plan was published by the National Regulator. You'll hear more about that in the interview. It's called NOPSEMA and was published in February and invited public comment. Submissions closed last week. Now, back in December, I was already uh, interested in this issue. I spoke with Peter Owen, the South Australia director of the Wilderness Society, and um some parts of this interview were previously broadcast on, on a sister community station, 3RRR, as part of a special I produced on the Great Australian Bight. I began by asking Peter Owen about the size of the bite.
0: Well, it's, it's huge. I mean, I, you know, I suppose in my mind it, it very much is, it almost goes from the Victoria-South Australian border all the way across and and, and past the uh, South Australia-Western Australian border. You know, the Great Australian Bight is a a vast area of the Southern Australian coastline and it includes some of the most intact marine wilderness areas left anywhere in the world.
3: And I'm curious about who has jurisdiction over those waters because I imagine Commonwealth Government will have some jurisdiction and the State Government, how does that intersect?
0: State waters are sort of the three nautical mile limit, jurisdictionally, and then the Commonwealth waters are are from there out to the edge of the economic exclusion zone. Um, So you've got two different jurisdictions responsible uh, in the Bight, and in fact, if you really push to the the east and west limits of the Bight, you've then also got probably Victorian, the Victorian and Western Australian governments with an interest too. So there's many different jurisdictions there, which does make the management of the region somewhat complicated, but if if we're very clear on how important this area is and uh, the need to Protected, it shouldn't be a complicated issue,
3: yes, and I understand the Commonwealth Government issued a number of licenses for offshore drilling in two thousand eleven. Can you tell me how that licensing works
0: it's a process where they what they call releasing acreage for the fossil fuel industry. they release this acreage, then the oil and gas industry companies bid on that acreage and they get the lease for it and then they go about trying to get different approvals in place in order to do anything with that lease so
3: so they get the license and and then there's still a, an approval process. Well, how does that work?
0: The initial license doesn't really give them the right to do anything other than to say that they've, they have, the I guess, the exclusive right to a particular part of the ocean, and then they need to go about applying for the relevant approvals through the, the Australian offshore oil and gas regulator, NOPSEMA, and that's a heavily regulated process, and there are all sorts of approvals required to actually do anything within that lease. Now, I can't help
3: thinking of the irony of those licenses being released in 2011, which was just the year after the big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I know that uh, some of the exploration is going to take place in marine park areas.
0: Yes, a number of the leases in the bite, you know, they they cover a vast area in the region. The two most active leases at the moment, Norwegian company was called StatOil, changed its name at, at its 2018 AGM to Equinor. Which, so, Equinor's two leases are actually right over the top of the Great Australian Bite Marine Park, which has been a protected area for uh, over 20 years now, in recognition of one of the most important w- whale nurseries in the world. So, can so, I just you-
3: ask, uh, who established the park? Who the protection of this area.
0: Well, both state, both South Australian and Commonwealth governments. So there was uh, over, agreement. Over, over a, yeah, over a long period of years, there's both state parks within the South Australian jurisdiction and then the Commonwealth marine park process as well. And obviously the Great Australian Bight Marine Park is the big slither right in the centre of the Bight of which the Equinor leases are over the top of.
3: What weight does it carry then, being the marine park, if people can drill there? It doesn't seem like it's got much teeth.
0: No, with that, I mean, that's a very, a very good point. All of the marine parks have a management plan. So within the outer boundaries of a marine park, they're zoned for different types of of activities. But there there are zones within those parks that allow oil oil and gas activities. You know, obviously that's a concern we've been raising for a long time. Should oil and gas activities be allowed at all within a marine park or even adjacent to a marine park, given that when something goes wrong in this context, oil goes everywhere and there's no way of stopping oil going into a marine park. So with with areas that are covered in state and Commonwealth marine parks, like the Bight, the, the question is whether oil and gas activity is is appropriate at all in an area like that and and we would argue no
3: and if you've just tuned in i'm speaking with peter rowan who's the director of the wilderness society of south australia and we're talking about the proposals to drill in the great australian Bight. and you mentioned that the people who want to explore to drill have to meet certain criteria they have to go through a regulating body so what does that regulating body consider
0: Nopsema is is the Australian oil and gas regulator. They essentially assess risk. That's a big part of their focus, and they and that's based on what they call as low as reasonable, reasonably practicable. A LARP is the acronym they use. There's currently a review into, to NOPSEMA's regulations and there'll be amendments put forward in the, in the, uh, in the federal parliament, um, as to how that process is going. You know, not, I think NOPSEMA, to their credit, are, are doing a thorough job within the area of expertise that they have. But NOPSEMA is a relatively new uh, regulatory instrument, uh, within Australia and, like most things, they evolve over time. Being concerned that there is no environment minister involved in the approvals process and, and have been advocating for a while that uh, I suppose a green light at the Nopsema level would, that should then trigger a secondary process where it then comes to the Federal Environment Minister who can assess Nopsema approval based around a broader range of criteria including social license, you know, whether the community is actually comfortable with this or not yes. um, which, which used to be the process under the Federal Environmental EPBC Act
3: The had trouble getting uh, through the regulator when they were initially planning to drill.
0: Yes I mean, they essentially had their environment plan uh, application, uh, you know, sent back to them by the regulator, and Opsema numerous times for further information, and eventually BP uh, decided to withdraw their plans uh, to drill in the bite. Through that process, a lot of information came to light. The Wilderness Society commissioned oil spill modelling, which showed potential catastrophic impacts of a blowout in the bite, you know, f- far greater than what we saw in the Gulf of Mexico.
3: We can look at the spill, which a uh, spill which is, you know, uh, the absolute worst possible outcome but there'll be other implications uh, for marine life in the bait
0: oh sure i mean the the whole process of exploration where they carry out seismic surveys and blast huge amounts of noise down through the water column obviously obviously has a serious impact on 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 the whales that move through the the Bight and, you know, all of the huge schools of dolphins and tuna and you know, I mean the Bight is an incredible incredibly rich and biodiverse marine ecosystem. So the early process of exploration, the seismic activity is incredibly destructive and then once they, you know, get a rough idea of where they might want to drill, you know, the drilling carries very serious risks because this is extremely deep and extremely rough and on the edge of what's technically possible and then even if, as far as the oil industry is concerned it goes very smoothly, you've then got essentially the slow, slow industrial of a marine wilderness area with ship strikes to whales, uh, you know, just a constant background noise. And uh, no matter how you look at it, it's a disaster uh, for the environment in the Bight. And and, and now we've obviously got Equinor, who were called Statoil, as I said, uh, previous to their last AGM, but they were also a silent partner behind the the initial BP application. They're not new to the area, and then when BP pulled out, pulled out uh, Statoil, now Equinor, took over the exclusive rights to two of the four BP leases. So, yeah, we're watching Statoil very closely. I mean, they're, they're two-thirds owned by the Norwegian government. I mean, it's an incredible irony. I mean, there's obviously big camp- campaigns in... Their part of the world to stop them drilling in within beautiful island archipelago areas and, and the like. I mean, to think that they are then pushing into one of the magnificent marine wilderness areas of Australia is it beggars belief.
3: I you mean, know, is it because it's so remote, people have no concept of it?
0: Probably an element of that. I, I would imagine there's an element of the the, the, you know, the oil and gas lobby and the oil and gas people within the Labor and the Liberal parties in Australia, you know, pushing to encourage these companies as well uh, to come. Mm-hmm. Into so, the so market. not so
3: far away at all
0: no, no, no. There's very strong oil and gas advocacy happening within, you know, the peak body in Australia, and and with, uh, you know, certain politicians within the the coalition and the Labor Party to encourage these companies into the bite. Um, and, and given given all of the work that's that's been done through the process of of BP and Chevron, you know, trying to get approvals, and and what we now know about the bite, what we now know about the magnitude of the risk associated with this interest, so you could almost excuse the fact that they were releasing acreage in the bite back when they did, because little was known about the magnitude of the risk and what was at stake and the amazing marine environment and the bite, but it's absolutely inexcusable now.
3: And that's a very passionate Peter Owen, the South Australian Director of the Wilderness Society. And uh, I mentioned uh, before the interview that, um, that there were the Equinor Environmental Plan had been up for public comment, and uh, Peter told me yesterday that uh, 30,000 people have made submissions wow. <laughs> on the environmental plan, <laughs> <laughs> that which you know, closed last Thursday, and the submissions closed. Now, we don't know, you know, what's in, you know what's in those comments or responses, but I would think that there would be a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, who aren't happy about that. And we will be doing an interview with someone who did write a submission, and that should be on next week, so we'll hear a little bit more. I think it's important to pay attention to it right now. And the other thing that's happening in Parliament is Tim Storer, who's a senator from South Australia, has a bill before the House to have any offshore um, exploration of oil Needing not only the approval of NOPSEMA but also the approval of a minister, which um, Peter mm. mentioned isn't there right now, and uh, so yeah, at the moment all that stands between us and the drilling is NOPSEMA. So, so there we go. I mean, they, you know, as he said, they did knock back BP mm. in the past, but I guess right now Equinor has the benefit of all those other knockbacks in writing their environmental plan. So I imagine they'll be making it stronger as they go. Um, So it's going to be fascinating to follow this story and to see what happens, and particularly in light of the student strike Mm. as well, strikes, yeah. So uh, just uh, wonderful to have um, Blanche in the studio. Thank you so much for being here.
7: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Blanche.
3: Yeah, that's been great. And I really want to thank Julie oh, for watching. we putting her on the spot. <laughs> we and did. We about <laughs> yes. And we heard uh, obviously from Peter Owen just then and uh, on the Great Australian Bite and um Julian Merrick I just really loved uh, his thoughts on that play Manners mm. and uh, I hope again I mean it was only shown it was its premier performance in Australia at the at the festival so I hope um someone will bring it back for some other um you know cities or or towns or whatever it needs more exposure here in Australia I feel yeah so thanks everyone for this morning stay tuned now for Women on the Line And um, see you all next Monday for April Fool's Day. (laughs) April Fool's Day. (laughs) It's going to be fun.
1: 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.